And as we were singing this morning, I couldn't help but think about someday, very soon, we will be singing in front of Christ our Lord, our Savior, with all nations and all people groups. And I look forward to that day. And may that be our prayer as a church as well. Reach for your Bibles with me. Turn into your Bibles to 2 Peter chapter 3. 2 Peter chapter 3 will be in verses 14 through 16 today for this morning's scripture reading. If you're in need of a Bible, please feel free to use a pew Bible located in front of you. You'll find today's scripture reading on page 1209. 2 Peter chapter 3, starting in verse 14 through 16. Follow along as I read the words of the Lord. Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. And count the patience of our Lord as salvation just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their destruction as they do the other scriptures. Father, we come this morning with humble hearts, Lord. Father, thankful that our peace is found in you and you alone, and nothing else and no one else. Father, as Pastor Bruce prayed earlier, Father, may our minds and our hearts today be set on you for this next hour. May we hear from you in your word, Father, and may we just submit to your authority, submit to your will in our lives. We thank you most of all for Jesus, his death, burial, and resurrection, and it's in his name we pray. Amen. Well, this morning we are continuing on in our sermon series through 2 Peter chapter 3, and a series we're calling Persevere, because we are living in the last days. With that in mind, I want to begin with this question, and that is, how important do you think it is to get it right when it comes to flying an airplane, or does it matter at all? The story goes that in 1979, a large passenger jet with 257 people on board, left the country of New Zealand for a sightseeing flight to Antarctica and back. But unknown to the pilots, however, someone had modified the flight coordinates by a mere two degrees. And this air placed aircraft 28 miles to the east of where the pilots assumed they were. And so as they approached Antarctica, the pilots descended to a lower altitude to give the passengers a a better look at the landscape. Although both were experienced pilots, neither had made this particular flight before. And so they had no way of knowing that the incorrect coordinates had placed them directly in the path of an active volcano that rises from the frozen landscape to a height of more than 12,000 feet. As the pilots flew onward, the white of the snow and ice covering the volcano blended with the white of the clouds above, making it appear as though they were flying over a flat ground. By the time the instruments sounded the warning light that the ground was rising fast toward them, it was too late. The airplane crashed into the side of the volcano, killing everyone on board all because they were just two degrees off. Now listen, some things in life 
are just too important, they're too significant not to get it right, like flying an airplane. And that is especially true, the same is true when it comes to the return of Jesus Christ. This is why Paul defends here in chapter 3 the truth that Jesus is coming again. And then he exhorts us as Christ followers to persevere in the faith because the day of the Lord is in sight. The day of the Lord is coming. It is near. And so like the navigation of a plane, being off just a little bit can mean the difference between one's life and death. And as we come to Peter's conclusion here in chapter 3, in fact, his conclusion, it begins in verse 14 and continues all the way through the end of the chapter in verse 18. And he somewhat has a two-part conclusion. We're going to focus in on the first part of his conclusion. And the first part of his conclusion all comes down to one simple question. And that question is this. It's in your notes. It's coming up on the screen. And that is, does Christ's coming make any difference in your life? Does this reality of Christ coming again make a difference, any difference, in your life? You see, the promise of Christ's coming, Peter is exhorting us to consider, is that His coming should motivate us. His coming should move us to persevere in our faith. And what we're going to see today, and then obviously as we conclude this next Sunday, is Peter has one great concern, one overarching concern for our lives, and that is that we as Christ followers, that we as a church, we would persevere in our faith in these last days till Jesus comes. So once again, Peter addresses his readers in the beginning of his conclusion as beloved when he writes in verse 14, therefore, beloved. Now, why does Peter do that? In fact, this is the second time he's calling them beloved. And the reason is Peter desperately wants his audience to know, his readers in his day, as well as us even now, he wants them to know that they are loved by God. They are his beloved. And the proof of that is his sending of his son, Jesus Christ to provide the way of salvation for us. Listen, we are beloved by God. And Peter also wants us to know that they are beloved by him as well. This is why he writes this letter. He takes the time to do this because he loves these, this church and these believers here, just as he still loves us today through the inspiration of God's word as we have it recorded for us here. We are beloved by God, and Peter loves us. He is concerned for our well-being. And so he implores us to persevere. He wants them to know we are loved. And so he writes, therefore, beloved, therefore what? Therefore, in light of Christ's coming in the new heavens and the earth in which righteousness dwells. He just talked about that in the preceding verse. He says, persevere in the faith. In other words, let the hope of this glorious future that is yours, which Christ has provided for you, let that future move you and motivate you in this life now. Let it move you and motivate you to persevere in this life till Jesus comes. As one author writes, John Stott, he says, it is the hope of both a new heaven and a new earth that should inspire us and drive us on. 
Now let me illustrate this, if I might be able to here, how this works. And so most of us, most of life, and I'm sure you can identify with this, it is marked by seasons of life, which are often marked by major events in our lives. And so, for example, for my life, those events are marked by college graduation, a wedding uh, even prior to my college graduation, becoming a dad, becoming the pastor of this church here, and then recently becoming a grandparent. These are all marks in my life, and they're exciting things. Obviously, the birth of our two boys ranks among some of the most significant events of my life. After all, few events in life are anticipated with more joy and more excitement than the birth of a child. And if you're a parent, you can relate to that. In fact, I remember how the anticipation of Tyler being born just kind of fueled this explosion of excitement and energy in Darla and I's lives. For example, it was the topic of our conversation when we found out she was pregnant. It's, it, it, listen, a day didn't seem to go by where we didn't talk about it. Her pregnancy. We were excited about Tyler coming. Uh, it became, it even prompted the rearrangement of our home. Do you realize you had that kind of influence, Tyler? We rearranged our house in light of his coming. We remodeled the whole bedroom. We bought baby furniture for him. We spent money. Yes. And it even motivated us to make adjustments at work and in our finances. Why? Because a baby was coming. Tyler was coming. And now, if the arrival of a baby is the reason for such activity in our lives like that, then Peter's logic is this. Then how much more should the arrival of Jesus Christ, His second coming, who is our Savior and Redeemer, make a difference in our lives now? You see, the promise of Christ's coming that Peter holds out before us. He's saying, listen, let that future, let that reality motivate you. Let it move you and drive you and inspire you to persevere in the faith in these last days. Now, what does that look like? What Peter does here in this, in this uh, conclusion, especially in the first part here, he gives us a series of exhortations. He basically just kind of lists them off, and bam, bam, one right after another. And so let's unpack that a little bit here for the next few minutes. Number one, he implores us to keep waiting with hope for Christ's coming. Keep looking and waiting with hope for Christ's coming. Peter tells us again when he writes in verse 14, he says, Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, it's also sometimes translated, since you are looking forward to these things. And what are we looking forward to? What are these things that Peter's referring to? The Chiefs going back to the Super Bowl? We, we hope that happens, right? We hope they begin that process even today, uh, that they get on a winning streak. We look forward to that. We, we wait for that to happen. But that's not what Peter's alluding to here, obviously, is it the day you quit your job and retire? No, that may be something you anticipate, you look forward to, but ultimately that's not what we put our hope in. He says we are to keep looking with hope. We are to eagerly wait with hope to Christ's coming in the new heavens and new earth that is referred to in verse 13. Now the scoffers, as we have already seen, 
earlier in this chapter, they mocked this idea. They scoffed at the idea of such a future world where righteousness dwells. But we, as Christ followers, listen, we are looking forward to this day, and Peter now wants us to persevere in this hope, the hope of Jesus coming, the hope of a new creation as we wait. Why? Because Peter knows how easy it is to lose our hope while living in this world. It is especially easy. Man, you you look around you, you maybe have some relationships that have gone south, you whether it's at work, neighbors, you 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 hear or read of the news, you just look at our our country, the world in general, it's corrupt, it's chaotic. It's easy to lose hope when you look around you. And he knows, Peter does, the things in this world can also distract you. He knows that the disappointments in the world can discourage you. He knows that even the people in this world can deceive you. And so Peter's reminding us, don't put your hope in those things. Our hope is in the promise of Christ's coming. It is in the promise of a new creation, a new heaven and new earth. And so we keep waiting. We keep looking with hope to Christ's coming if you want to persevere in your faith. And then Peter says, number two, be diligent to be found in purity and at peace. Be diligent to be found in purity and at peace. In fact, notice what he writes in the rest of verse 14. He says, therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these Be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. Now that phrase, be diligent, it is one of Peter's favorite phrases that he uses. And it's the third time that Peter has urged us to be diligent in this uh, letter of his, of 2 Peter. And so what does it mean to be diligent? Uh, It's sometimes translated as make every effort toward a goal. And so we're striving. To be diligent is to make every effort towards something. In other words, it doesn't happen by accident. It It requires deliberate focus. It requires deliberate effort. It takes work. Be diligent. Make every effort. That's our responsibility in this And the goal, Peter says, of our diligent effort is to be found. Interesting. To be found by Jesus because he's coming. And Peter says our our goal, the reason we're making every effort in this, we are, the goal is to be found by Jesus in purity and at peace. This is what Peter means when he writes this, this phrase that he uses, without spot or blemish and at peace. Now, those words, without spot or blemish, it actually takes us all the way back to the Old Testament where the sacrifices brought to God by the people of God had to be spotless. They had to be without blemish. Why? Because only a perfect sacrifice could pay for sin which pointed in the Old Testament sacrificial system, it was all pointing forward to the ultimate sacrifice of Jesus Christ. It pointed forward to our need for the perfect sacrifice of Jesus Christ, the once and for all sacrifice. And now Peter says that we should be found by Jesus when he comes again without spot or blemish. 
Now, please understand, Peter's not implying that we, we can be perfect in this life. I wish that was the case, don't you? That day will come. That day, it will come. We look forward to that day when Jesus gathers his church and we are taken up to glory and we will live where, in his words, righteousness dwells. Where the, we dwell in glory, we dwell with perfection. But that day is not yet here. So when he says to be found without spot, it doesn't mean that we can be perfect, but it's the goal in which we are working towards. In Peter, what he's doing here, he's actually contrasting. He's contrasting two different behaviors, two different lifestyles. He's contrasting the behavior and the conduct and the lifestyle of the false teachers and the scoffers with that of Christ followers, who should be without spot and blemish. In fact, he even says in chapter 2, in describing the false teachers, he says they are spots and blemishes. That's what he says about them. They themselves, they're filled with spots and blemishes in chapter 2 and verse 13. In fact, this lack of purity by the false teachers will condemn them to destruction when Jesus comes. And yet, this is the standard of purity that is to characterize our lives as Christ followers who have been saved by the righteousness of Christ through faith in Jesus Christ. Now, in one sense, we are already declared righteous by God through our faith in Jesus Christ. That's a glorious concept. That is a glorious reality. But in another sense we now must diligently pursue this righteousness while we are living in an unrighteous world. That's what Peter is exhorting us here towards. He say, well, what does this look like? What does this righteousness look like? Practically speaking, what does this purity look like that I'm to make every effort to pursue? I'm to be diligent to pursue it so that when Jesus comes, I am found by him to be without spot, without blemishes. Well, we're not left on our own to guess what that looks like. The New Testament tells us, in fact, in one place, the Apostle Paul tells us in Colossians chapter 3, 5 through 10, listen to words he says. He says, therefore put to death what belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, Lust, evil desire, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, God's wrath is coming upon the disobedient. And you once walked in these things when you were living in them, but now. I just love that. This, this described our life prior to Christ, but because we've been redeemed, we've been rescued, we've been changed radically by Jesus Christ, there's a but now to our lives. And Paul says, but now put away all the following, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and filthy language from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, since you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self. You are being renewed in knowledge according to the image of Creator. And so that's how Paul describes what our lives should look like. What does that purity look like? It looks like this. And so what happens, though, when I find myself stained by sin? Because we are not perfect. Sin is still going to be 
a part of our lives. So what do we do then when we are stained by sin? Well, then we must diligently embrace the promise of 1 John 1, 9, which says if we confess our sins, he, that is God, is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to do what? And to cleanse us from all unrighteousness so that we now may be righteous again, practically speaking, in our conduct, in our character. This is what we are to diligently pursue. We diligently pursue purity, and when we do that, Peter says, listen, we will not be ashamed. We will not be afraid then when Jesus comes. When he comes, we will be found to be pure, living in righteousness. But we will be found by him, in his word he says, without spot or blemish and at peace. Now, that's interesting because our world is clamoring for peace. And the only real peace to be found is peace with God, first and foremost. Paul says we are, in our sinful nature, born sinners and by choice, we are enemies with God. There is no peace within us and around us because of a sin-fallen world, and we are enemies with God. We have a broken relationship with God. We are not at peace. And so we should not expect to experience any peace until we are reconciled to a holy God through the provision of Jesus Christ. And it's only then that we begin to experience peace before a holy God. We are peace. But that peace in the vertical relationship with God should also translate then should that we are found at peace with one another horizontally. And that's also the implication of what Peter is suggesting here. Christ should find us at peace, not only with God, but with one another. Paul writes in Romans 12, 18, if it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. He also writes in Romans 14, 19, so then we must pursue what promotes peace and what builds up one another. And so the question that begs to be asked of us, are we doing this? Are you diligently pursuing peace with other people? Are you, or are you harboring anger and bitterness toward others? Listen, in light of Christ's coming, we should be diligent to pursue both purity in our lives. It should characterize our conduct and our character. But we should also be diligent to pursue peace with one another. You say, why is that? Listen to what Hebrews 12, 14 says. It says, make every effort. There's that phrase again. Be diligent. Make every effort to live in peace with everyone and to be holy. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. And so pursue it. Pursue it, but understand you cannot, you cannot manufacture this holiness, this purity. It comes through your relationship with Jesus Christ. It's God-given as we persevere in the faith. And then that brings us to number three. The third exhortation, Peter tells us, he says, count the Lord's patience as a time of salvation. 
He writes in verse 15, in count, sometimes you, that, it means consider or regard the patience of our Lord at salvation. Remember how the scoffers regarded the Lord's patience? What did they think? How did they regard it? How did they count it? Some regarded it as simply a myth, the second coming of Christ. Others said the Lord's delay was an indication that there would be absolutely no coming at all. And then some even said it meant God's promises were unreliable because he can't be trusted because he hasn't come yet. But Peter tells us not to think like these scoffers when it comes to the Lord's patience. Instead, he says we are to count the Lord's patience as a time of salvation. This is a continuation of what Peter told us back in verse 9 when he said the Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that we should all come to repentance. In other words, Peter is telling us how to think here, how, to, how we should think about the time of delay in which we are living before Christ comes again. Now, most people want to see meaning. They want to see direction and coherence in the course of human history. And so there are historians that have described these epics of history. We know them as the Dark Ages or the Renaissance period or the Age of Enlightenment or the Industrial Age or the Modern Age. And generally, in our desire to understand and make sense of history, we key off of mankind, how man has progressed. What man has achieved, in other words, determines the meaning of history. But there's one group of Peter who should always key off of God, and that's followers of Jesus Christ. And so what does this mean? It means that as we look at the world around us, we should see the world the way God does. And as we interpret the meaning of history, we should interpret history the way God does. And verse 15 here is God's word on how to interpret the time, the period in which we live. And what is God's interpretation of this time in which we live? Well, notice that in your notes here. The history of the world between the first and second coming of Jesus Christ is, above all, an age of salvation. You see, one thing above all else marks this 2,000-year period as utterly unique. Namely, it is the time of salvation. That's what Peter's emphasizing here. Jesus Christ, the Savior, has come, and it opened up the way to God. And while God delays His second coming of His Son, that way is still open to Him. But when Jesus comes again, that way will be closed and the time of salvation will be passed. So how should we think about the time in which we are living now? Well, I suggest don't take your cues from social media. Certainly don't take your cues from our culture. Listen, take your cues from the Word of God. We should view this time, this period in which we are living, as a time of salvation. Therefore, it is also a time to share the hope of the gospel in Jesus Christ with those who do not yet know Christ as their Savior and Lord. 
Listen, from the perspective of eternity, we will look back on these 2,000 years as the conditions of human life from the dark ages to the modern age will be significant, or I should say insignificant, in comparison to the distinguishing mark of this age between the first coming and the second coming of Jesus. And that this was the time when people may be saved, may be rescued, may be redeemed from their sins and given eternal life and have a relationship with Jesus Christ. One author puts it this way. He says, the only history of eternal significance is the history of missions. The only biographies that will be cherished in the age to come are the lives of the saints, the people who knew that these were the times for salvation. And so let us here at LifeBridge, let us be a people who key off of God. Let us be a people who see the times in which we live from His perspective. Regard the patience of the Lord as a time of salvation, but also as a time of proclaiming the gospel before it's too late. Now, the application of that is obvious. First and foremost, we need to make sure of our own salvation, right? Have you come to that place in your own life where you have received Christ as your Lord and Savior? recognizing that you are hopeless and helpless apart from Jesus Christ. And so the first application here is to look in the mirror and make sure of your own salvation. And then help others to make sure of their salvation. Remember, the day of judgment is coming When Jesus comes again, He is not coming as the Savior. He is coming as the judge. And when He comes again, it will be too late for salvation. And so make sure of your own salvation and then help people to make sure of their salvation. The last thing we learn in order to persevere in the faith is then to remain steadfast in the truth of God's Word. Remain steadfast in the truth of God's Word. Why? Because the whole Bible is consistent about the promise of Christ's return, and it is therefore trustworthy. In fact, Peter points out that the Apostle Paul writes the same thing about Christ's return when he says in verses 15 and 16, look at it, look what he says. He says, And count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him as he does in all his letters, when he speaks in them of these matters. What matters? The matters that Peter is talking about in all of chapter 3 here, Second Peter. Primarily, the second coming of Jesus Christ. That promise that is given to us, a precious promise. It is our blessed hope. So what did Paul say on these matters? Well, Paul wrote, listen to this in Romans 2.4, He says, or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 6, verse 2, he says, Behold, now is the acceptable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. And so what's going on here, what we're seeing, is that both Peter and Paul are teaching that God's delay of coming judgment It is an act of His kindness. 
It's an act of his patience that should be regarded as a time for repentance and salvation. And so by calling in Paul's support here, Peter is showing us that there is agreement on these matters among the apostles. You see, the scoffers, they rejected this. They rejected the second coming of Christ. But the apostles, Peter says, listen, they are united on this issue. They are all saying the same thing. Jesus is coming in the time while he delays is for our salvation. And so what Peter is also doing, he's actually putting Paul's letters in the same category as, quote, the other scriptures. You may be wondering, well, okay, Bruce, that's great, but what's the big deal? Well, the big deal is this. All the scriptures are the inspired word of God and are therefore trustworthy. That's the big deal. We can trust the Bible. We can trust the promises that have been given to us. Listen, Jesus viewed the Old Testament as God's word in Matthew 5, 17. Peter himself taught in 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 20 and 21, that all Scripture was inspired by God as men were moved along by the Holy Spirit. Paul taught in 1 Corinthians 2, 13, we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit of God. We can trust what we hold in our hands. We have the revealed Word of God as our authority. It is trustworthy. It is inspired by the Holy Spirit. And so what God writes, we believe and we trust. This is why we embrace God's Word as the foundation for our lives as Christ followers. This is why we teach God's Word, preach God's Word in this church. We believe the Bible is the inspired Word of God, and therefore it is trustworthy. We believe God's Word stands before us as our guide. We believe God's Word is over us as our judge. We believe God's Word is under us as the rock of our hope. We believe what it says in places like Psalm chapter 1, where it says, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is what? In the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. In other words, the more you read God's word, the more you immerse yourself in God's word, the more you will see with the eyes of God as you look around. And the more it will impact your life today. It will lift you up and encourage you. It's what will allow you to persevere in the last days along with the power of the Holy Spirit and the people of God coming alongside of you to hold you accountable and to encourage you. This brings us to two warnings as well, though. Notice this. Remain steadfast. Remain steadfast in reading and hearing God's Word. Why? Because all Scripture is inspired by God, but not all Scripture is easy to understand. So remain steadfast in reading it and hearing it. Now, Peter is the first to admit something here that we all can probably identify with. 
he's the first to admit that Paul's letters are not always easy to understand. When he writes in verse 16, there are some things in his letters that are hard to understand. And don't you just love Peter for that? He's so real. He's so honest. What you see is what you get. Because how many times have you read the Bible and thought, now what did I just read? Because I don't have a clue what that means. And there's times I'll admit the same thing. There are parts of the Old Testament, let's be honest, that are a little hard to understand. And there are even some of what Paul writes in the New Testament that may be even a little harder to understand. And so the question that you may be thinking, well, if all Scripture is inspired by God, then why is some Scripture so hard to understand? Well, here's the simple answer. Because all Scripture is inspired by God. You're like, gee, that helps. Well, listen to how John Piper puts it. He says, being inspired, the Scriptures reveal the mind of God. The mind of God is vastly greater than our mind and will often be perceived by us as strange and complex, not familiar and simple. Therefore, the Scriptures will sometimes be strange and complex and hard to understand. The continued selection only of what is simple in the Bible would be a sin in the regular preaching of the church. Therefore, preaching which aims to deliver the whole counsel of God in Scripture will sometimes be complex and will demand from God's people an utmost in humility and mental effort. You say, what does all that mean? It just means that if we value God's Word as God's authority for our lives, if we value God's Word as His truth to guide our lives, then we will remain steadfast in God's word, period. Listen, Peter is not saying here that the Bible is impossible to understand. He's saying that there are some things that are, yes, hard to understand, which means the Bible is possible to understand, but it requires some diligence on our part. It requires some mental effort as we read it as well as we hear it being taught and preached. But we tend to treat our Bibles like we treat the Internet sometimes. If we click on a website that's hard to navigate, hard to find the information we're looking for, what do we do? Man, we're, we quit that website. We're off to the next website. And that's what we tend to do with God's Word. When we come to a passage, we don't quite understand at that moment. Or we treat the Bible like social media. If we don't agree with that meme, if we don't agree with that person's post or, or like that person's post, we just stop following them. And we do the same with God's Word. But Peter is imploring us here, listen, especially in the last days, remain steadfast in the Word of God. It's your foundation. And so the first warning is just that. And then he gives us a second warning. Remain steadfast in applying and using God's word. Why? Because it's easy to twist scripture to justify our sins, but it can lead to your destruction. Look what Peter writes in the second part of verse 16. He says, notice it with me, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction. That's frightening. As they do, the other scriptures. 
Another way to put this is that the interpretation of Scripture, it is a matter of life and death. To misunderstand God's word, listen, that is one thing. But to misinterpret God's word is quite another. And to do so intentionally. And that is the problem that Peter is attacking here with these false teachers in chapter 2 and who he names as scoffers even here in this chapter. The false teachers in Peter's day were probably doing this with Paul's letters as well as the rest of Scripture. They were twisting God's Word. They were distorting, misinterpreting God's Word. Why? To justify their own sinful lifestyle. Now, The reality is, most of us here, more than likely, we are not false teachers. I don't know that I would put anybody in that category. We're not false teachers, but the question we ought to ask ourselves is this. Am I a false believer when it comes to certain parts of God's word, especially those parts that our culture attacks? You see, in other words, a couple of things to think through on this. Are we twisting God's word, for example, to justify our sexual preferences and practices? How many Christians are twisting God's word or or even outright denying God's word on the issue of sexuality? Especially as it pertains to relationships, marriage, gender, and so on. Are we twisting God's word to justify our pursuit of happiness in this world? That is a common refrain among many Christians today. Why are you doing what you're doing? Well, it makes me happy. God wants me to be happy. Yeah, really? Are you sure? When it goes against the teaching of God's word? You see, listen, God... Yes, he wants you to be happy and holy, but you will never find happiness apart from God's holiness. It's only when you pursue his holiness that you will find true happiness in God. And so whatever scripture these false teachers were distorting and twisting, Peter says, and this is scary, that the end result was their destruction. This is why he's urging us as true followers of Jesus Christ to do what? To remain steadfast, to persevere in applying and using God's word as he intended, not what we want it to say. Listen, there is all the difference in the world between finding the Bible hard to understand and willfully twisting it to justify one's sinful desires and lifestyle. Doing so, Peter says, can lead to our destruction either in this life or in the next life. And so submit your life to the word of God. Remain steadfast in the truth of his word. That's the exhortation here. That's what he's pleading with love. We are his beloved. God has given you everything to do this as well. So persevere. And as we come to the end end here of chapter 3, Peter wants us to know that the day of the Lord is coming. 
And so he is doing that. He's exhorting us to persevere in the faith till Jesus comes. For Peter, listen, the promise of Christ's coming is everything. This is our hope. This is the day we are looking forward to. This is the day that inspires us. It's the day that drives us in these last days. For Peter, the promise of Christ's coming, it should motivate us. It should move us to persevere in our faith. And so let's bring this home by asking a heart-penetrating question. Notice it in your notes. On the screen, what motivates and moves you more in life? Is it the promise of Christ's coming and the prospect of the new heavens and new earth? Or are you motivated more by the promise and prospect of something else in this temporary passing world? Again, what motivates you moves you more in these last days? Teens, I ask you, what moves you? What motivates you? The rest of us. What moves you to wake up in the morning and get out of bed? Is it that paycheck that you get for working a week? And I understand we all need money. But what motivates you beyond that? What moves you? Peter's holding out something that transcends all of that that we see with our eyes. Diedrich Bonhoeffer, a German theologian in the midst of Nazi rule, wrote in his book, The Cost of Discipleship, that the first call every Christian experiences is the call to abandon the attachments of this world. Listen to what author and pastor David Platt writes in his book, Radical, while on a missions trip in India. He says, and I quote, As I stood on that mountain, God gripped my heart. He flooded my mind with two resounding words. Wake up! Wake up and realize that there are infinitely more important things in your life than football and a 401k. Wake up and realize there are real battles to be fought, so different from the superficial, meaningless battles you focus on. Wake up to the countless multitudes who are currently destined for a Christless eternity. Listen, for some of us, that... David Platt just wrote about, that is a foreign concept for the simple reason that so few of us are actually gripped by the promise of Christ's return and the prospect of a new heaven and new earth where righteousness dwells. In fact, if we're honest, we have to admit there is a whole lot of Demas in some of us and a little bit of Demas in all of us. You're like, who's Demas? Demas was at one time in his life a ministry partner of the Apostle Paul. He worked alongside Paul in proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. He was a co-worker, a co-laborer of the Apostle Paul. And yet, because he did not persevere, later on, Paul says this about Demas in 2 Timothy 4.10. For Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me. And when Paul says deserted me, the implication is he deserted Christ. He deserted the gospel of Jesus Christ. And if truth be told... 
Listen, perhaps there are some here this morning, we have become so attracted by this present world that is passing away, so attached to this present world, and we have so much affection for this present world that we now have little capacity for delighting in and hoping for God's glorious new world that is coming. This is why Peter is urging us, he's exhorting us, he is pleading with us to embrace the promise of Christ's coming, to fix your heart on this promise and let it motivate you and move you to persevere in your faith in Jesus Christ. With your heads bowed. And as we take a few minutes here to respond to the Word of God through Peter, what we have heard this morning, what Peter writes to us. I want to give us a few minutes to to pray, to go to the Lord in prayer. And, And perhaps some of you just, you need to confess sin. You need to confess that, man, I have put way too much emphasis on this world. I've been distracted by this world. I've been way too attracted by it. My affections are set on this world. Whatever it might be, but you know the Holy Spirit is pricking that it's not right. And if that's you, I, I encourage you, just take a few minutes here and confess and ask God for his forgiveness. And then for all of us that we would renew our commitment to the Lord, our surrender to Jesus Christ, And ask God, God, give me the grace to persevere. I can't do this on my own, but through you, Lord, I can. In your power, in your spirit, and through the encouragement of this church, Lord, I want to persevere till Jesus comes. Would you pray that prayer? Heavenly Father, we we come to you humbly. We come to you confessing our inadequacies. Lord, we come to you confessing that we, there's just, there's a whole lot of demons in our hearts. We've been gripped by this present world in which we live at times, perhaps a lot of times. Our affections are set here. And so, Lord, we confess that as individuals and corporately. And we ask you to realign our hearts to put our focus on your truth, your promise, and what lies ahead for us as your people. Lord, let that move us, let that motivate us to persevere in the faith till Jesus comes. Lord, let that be true of us as a church body. And Lord, until he comes, may we not only See this time as a time of salvation, but Lord, may we be burdened for those around us who we interact with that do not yet know Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. Give us those opportunities and may we take advantage of just sharing our own story of redemption and how you have radically changed our lives because of Jesus Christ. Lord, work in our church, work in our lives as only you can. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Kevin, why don't you come on up as we get ready to sing and close out our service with a song.